Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. The smart-eared among you will have noticed I'm not Stephanie Flanders. In fact, I'm Tom Wallach, Chief Economist at Bloomberg. Stephanie's taking a break this week and, in a rare display of poor judgement, left me to mind the shop. Now, there haven't been many benefits from the Covid crisis, but one that is hard to deny has been that the planet has been given a bit of a breather. Carbon emissions are expected to fall in 2020 for the first time since the Great Financial Crisis, and marine biologists tell us that whales and other aquatic life are getting to hear themselves think for a change. In those respects, at least, we don't really want to go back to the way things were. But how to do it? Bloomberg's own Michel Jamrisco has a story this week explaining how some of Southeast Asia's tourist hotspots are trying to answer that question. We also have senior UK economist Dan Hansen on Brexit and Dave Rank, America's former top diplomat in China, on how relations between the world's two biggest powers might look under a Biden administration. But first of all, here's Michelle with a view from Thailand's tourist authority. These feelings waiting for you to come back. From the north, That's the appeal from the Tourism Authority of to Thailand, a country that typically owes one-fifth of its economy to tourism. Thailand has seen its growth prospects fall apart this year, with travel shut down amid the global pandemic. Yet even as Southeast Asia's second biggest economy is doing what it can to bring visitors back, it's also doubling down on a rare victor in the pandemic, the environment. The country has seen normally packed beaches get a reprieve. Elephants roam freely and endangered species pepper lonely shorelines. That's prompted Thailand's environmental minister, Varawat Silpa Archa, to dust off a decades-old dream. Now, by government decree, Thailand's national parks will be required to close for at least a couple of months every year. That gives Mother Nature the chance to regularly get the sort of virus-era rehabilitation that's been a silver lining for an otherwise disastrous 2020. COVID-19 is a big knock on the door that is time for you to adjust your way of life. If you don't adjust, Mother Nature will do it for you. The disease is the result of humans upsetting balance in nature. Everything has repercussions. We have to find balance and should use this pandemic as a lesson that we have to protect nature before it's too late. We have to realize the severity of the damage we've caused. The coronavirus pandemic has been a wake-up call to many. Amid the horrors of sickness, the terrible death toll and the devastation of economies, it's prompted people, businesses and governments across the globe to rethink the way they live and operate. Now, as countries try to take their first steps back toward normality, many are reassessing and wondering what elements of the COVID world they might actually want to keep, even after the crisis has passed. On the Thai island destination of Koh Samet, which forms part of a marine national park, businesses are weighing the government's message on sustainable tourism against their simple desperation to have visitors back. I've lived here for more than 30 years. I've never seen this. That's Galawin Kumnung, also known as Petch. 
He's a fire dance performer who also owns a bar. It is the rule that looks good on paper, but in reality, especially for small business operators who have rent to pay, two-month closures could be devastating. Before the pandemic struck, Kosamet was well known for its nightlife and party scene, which profited from the hordes of visitors to the island's idyllic white sand beaches. One afternoon earlier this month, only a few visitors walked on the shoreline of the newly pristine main beach. Talking to locals from the beachfront papaya salad vendors to bar workers like Wichian Juntuong, everyone worries how they will survive if there are more months without tourists. Wichian, who tends the Naga Bar on the island, thinks he might even have to leave the country to find employment and pay the bills during the closure. There are two sides. Some agree with the closures because it's during the low season, but some said the closure will mean no income for them. Sarantip Tupmangkansup president of the island's tourism association, says there was already a tangle with government officials on the duration of the annual closures, which the ministry first wanted to be four months long. Businesses are calling for a waiver from the closures altogether. They argue that an annual shutdown would inflict yet more pain on the island's 1,200 residents after the pandemic already decimated trade. It'll affect us for sure. Don't forget that this archipelago isn't just some uninhabited islands. There are people living on Got Summit. So if they close, there will be an impact. At first they wanted to close the park for four months. We've asked them to cut it back to two months. But really we don't want them to close at all. Who will be responsible for our jobs, income and livelihoods? For tourism businesses, if there's no clients at all for just two or three weeks, we'll feel the pain already because there are expenses. People here on the island are already taking care of the environment. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Nobody is here to destroy the island. They need to rethink this. Kosamet was once a modest fishing village. Then it exploded into a magnet for European visitors and backpackers. It's only getting tourists by the handfuls these days, though, and even then it's usually locals visiting on the weekends. With borders still largely closed and a special tourism visa only just being offered now, Thailand's efforts to revive the industry have relied on getting that domestic travel churning again. They've even tried offering high roller packages to push wealthier travelers to depleted resorts. But these have been met with limited success and are no match for Thai tourism's banner year of 2019, when it took in more than $60 billion in revenue from about 40 million foreign visitors. There's a heated debate in the business world about how hard to push sustainability tourism right now. If you don't prioritize it, you risk overstressing popular destinations and ruining what visitors came to enjoy in the first place. But push too hard and only the very wealthiest will be able to frequent these beautiful corners of the earth crushing local mom-and-pop firms that rely on mass tourism. McKinsey and company partner Steve Saxon has spent the past decade and a half watching the fast-evolving tourism landscape in Asia, including a long-building debate on how many visitors might mean too much of a good thing. What we called over-tourism before was never actually any good for anybody. 
The tourists themselves didn't enjoy going to crowded places where they couldn't enjoy the natural beauty or see the sights because there were just too many other tourists. And in some cases, this even started to frustrate the local residents. Higher-end or more affluent tourism does support a bit more in terms of jobs and in terms of GDP. However, in terms of flights coming in, hotel rooms you need, that's dependent on the number of guests. The focus needs to be on how do we bring back the quantity and improve the quality at the same time. Thailand isn't alone in its dilemma, especially in Southeast Asia, whose travel and tourism industries account for over one-tenth of the region's GDP and its employment. The boom already had policymakers thinking about how to make sure these gains were sustainable. As in Thailand, the Philippines is now making the environment a bigger part of that conversation. It's become a sort of grassroots movement. Take Alaminos, home of the Hundred Islands National Park, as an example. 24-year-old Mayor Brian Celeste is sketching plans for longer-term restrictions to foot traffic. Local scuba sureros, divers who collect garbage, have been retrieving only a few kilograms a month recently, compared with hundreds before the virus hit. Celeste wants to preserve those gains long after COVID-19 has eased, and he's commissioned a study to help local officials moderate the inflow of visitors. For me, because the Hundred Islands itself, it's a treasure to, ano, it's a treasure to our city. So we cannot afford to lose Hundred Islands. And if we continue to over-commercialize our, our, ano, we may stand to lose it in the long run. So we try our best to limit, not severely limit naman, pero at least try to balance everything out. Balancing commercialization and preservation between the two. Because if you over-commercialize, masisirin hundred islands. If you preserve the, if you over-preserve, baka naman mawala ng income ang city. So it has, we have to strike the balance between the two. We heard a lot about balance in the course of reporting this story. In reality, government officials are all quick to celebrate environmental gains, but far more at odds about how to sustain them. That's especially true during a highly fraught economic recovery, as other problems pop up like a game of whack-a-mole, competing for attention. Even just across Asia, there are plenty of countries that are implementing their own environmental studies, but prioritizing the prettying up of local attractions in preparation for mobs of tourists to return. Sri Lanka is enjoying a bit of a boom in domestic tourism, and New Zealand's authorities are pushing the same. At Cambodia's world-famous Angkor Wat temple complex, flower beds and thousands of trees are being planted in anticipation of the crowd's return. Mother Nature certainly has more adoring fans these days. It'll be tough to keep up her winning streak as everyone recalibrates their lives yet again after the pandemic. But environmental activist Billy Dumaliang in the Philippines is upbeat. She sees businesses adapting because they'll have to. Because tourism has been uh, closed for so long, um, businessmen or tourism um, enterprises uh, might be tempted to, you know, get as many people back as possible. But I think the circumstances surrounding the pandemic will naturally um, help curb that because now people are forced to see and to innovate what other experiences, what other models they can use to become sustainable uh, financially and ecologically. As travel lanes reopen and fits and starts, 
some of the world's hottest destinations will have a new look. And they'll expect everyone to help keep it that way. For Bloomberg News, this is Michelle Jamrisco. Thanks, Michelle, for that report. Good to hear that the pandemic is having at least some positive impacts, even if the main beneficiaries so far are Thailand's elephant population. Now, let's go from a part of the world where the COVID pandemic is providing some respite to a part where it definitely is not, US-China relations. Already in 2020, we've had a war of words between Washington DC and Beijing over the origins of the COVID crisis, US sanctions on Chinese technology firms, escalating concern about events in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, the US closing a Chinese consulate, and China retaliating in kind. All of this, of course, is bad news for the global economy. At Bloomberg Economics, we've estimated that decoupling between China and the US could deal a significant blow to China's growth. And if the US persuaded its allies to join up on a containment strategy, China's annual expansion could slow all the way down towards 1%. Now, not a lot of people know more about US-China relations than Dave Rank. Dave served as the Deputy Chief of Mission in the US Embassy in Beijing. That means he was the most senior career diplomat, charged with making the relationship work on the ground. He quit in 2017 after a difference of opinion with the Trump administration on climate change. He believed in it, and they didn't and is now teaching at Yale and providing advice to business leaders from a perch at the Cohen Group. I'm very glad he's able to join us today. It's really been a remarkable deterioration in US-China relationships over the course of the last four years. Um, But with the election coming up in November, uh, there's a chance for a reset. How should we think about this? How much, is, how much of the deterioration in the relationship is an idiosyncrasy of the Trump administration and how much of it is structural, something we shouldn't expect to change no matter who's in power? Sure. That, I mean, that's a great question to start with, Tom. I, and as you note, I left government about three years ago. But I'll say even at the end of the Obama administration, there was a strong sense that the U.S.-China relationship was coming to a really fundamental change, that that the paradigm, the way we had looked at the relationship essentially since 1978, since uh, the U.S. and China started, uh, uh, recognized each other, uh, that uh, the rules of the game had changed and that whether it was Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, you were going to see a change in the U.S.-China relationship. I think, though, that, uh, you know, Donald Trump took the uh, relationship that no American government, uh, at least since the the uh, end of the Second World War, has gone, which is much more unilateral, uh, much less interested in the, the global structures and partnerships and alliances that really had been our hallmark since 1945. And so you know, I think there's an aberration in, in the sense that Donald Trump is not the internationalist, not interested in international partnerships, but the concern about China and, and uh, what it means for, for uh, the U.S., that competition. I think that was coming no matter who was there. And I think you'll see if, if Biden is elected that uh, there will be a tension in the relationship, uh, even if we get back to a more normal way of uh, working within the U.S. government. Dave, you worked with a number of officials uh, under the Obama administration who we might well see coming back if we see a Biden win in November. What's your sense of how the Biden team 
views the U.S.-China relationship. What do you think their priorities would be if we saw uh, them coming in at the end of November? Sure. Well, I, I think some you'd see some consistency. There's real concern, uh, not just in the, at the political level, in other words, in the Democratic and Republican Party, but also within the, the bureaucracy about particularly in the area of, of technology, uh, the rivalry between the United States and China, and the relevance of a lot of those technologies to really core national security concerns. And, and I think that'll be, uh, at least from what, what I can see and read, uh, that'll be a concern of a, an, would be a concern of a Biden administration if there is one. Uh, but, you know, I think you'd also see, which is, I think, very different from the Trump administration, uh, an effort uh, because the, in, the, you know, the people around Biden and, as I understand, uh, Vice President Biden himself, see a lot of areas where, you know, whether we want to or not, we're going to have to cooperate with the Chinese. We're going to have to work together. Areas like climate change, the Iran nuclear deal, and of course, the, the pandemic and dealing with the global public health uh, issues. Is there a world where things keep getting worse? I wonder whether the Chinese side have been pulling their punches because they're thinking we need to maintain optionality for when a Biden administration comes in. We don't want to burn our bridges. If a Biden team comes in and they maintain the same kind of broad strategic orientation regarding China as a kind of strategic threat, but they're more effective at building alliances, is there a world where the gloves come off and China's restraint is removed and we see relations deteriorating even further and faster than they have under the Trump administration? So I laughed, uh, Tom, because anyone who has lived through 2020 will tell you that it, it can always get worse, right? Uh, but I'm I'm relatively optimistic that uh, I mean the, for for however much the Chinese are concerned about you know a, a rivalry with the United States fundamentally they've got a lot of interest in stability not just in the in the U.S. China relationship but overall that they they have a big vested stake in the success of global systems and the global trading system and and, and in not uh, sort of deviating that from that and, and heading down the path to a really hot competition. I think they understand that that's not in their interest. It's not in our interest. Uh, and there is a middle ground where we can, it's kind of cliche, but we can compete without being, without confrontation that, that, you know, we can walk that fine line. Let's drill down on a couple of live issues. Um, first of all, um, I'd be really interested to get your view on financial decoupling. There's been a couple of great Bloomberg News scoops recently suggesting that at a senior level in the U.S. administration, there's been real consideration of imposing sanctions on a big Chinese bank, possibly imposing sanctions on some big Chinese financial startups and financial. Um, the kind of the, the child of the Alibaba group is one that's been mentioned from your sort of insider's experience, could you tell us a little bit about how that kind of decision would be made? Well, I, I guess I can talk about how that kind of decision used to, you know, would have used to be made. Now, under the Trump administration, it's a little different. And that's why, first of all, I've heard the same reports. And, and of course, Bloomberg has done a great job in, in uh, uh, fleshing some of those out. But it's really hard to tell what's going on in the, in the Trump administration, because so many decisions seem to be not just made at the highest levels, but started and finished at the highest levels. And so in, in the Obama administration or in previous administrations, you'd have people who know the issues intimately, understand the ups and downs, why, you know, taking action against one of the big, big four Chinese banks or against Ant Financial, you know, the impacts that could have 
on uh, real life issues here, whether they're uh, financial or legal or technical in the United States. In the Trump administration, you look at the TikTok and the WeChat bans and all of the legal trouble they've run into. That's what I think is, is different about this administration and where if something like that were to be rolled out, the, the odds that it w- would run into something that a, a sort of working level folks would have flagged as, hey, this is going to be a problem. It's not legal. Uh, it's going to have huge blowback for the U.S. economy that the, the Trump administration, I think, is liable to miss. Let's say they do it anyway. Let's say the Trump administration has a swing at Ant Financial. If you were sitting, if you were still sitting in that embassy in Beijing, what would you be worried about? What would you see as the sort of the range of possible Chinese reactions to a to a U.S. move like that? Yeah, I mean, I I think the the at least traditionally, I would worry about okay, what American companies are on the the outs with the Chinese anyway that have a a toehold here, but but are, are vulnerable. Are they liable to come under Chinese pressure? That's probably where I would look first. You know, the, I, I won't name names, but there are, I'm sure, companies that have had problems and, and just look for additional problems in that area. You know, something like the unreliable entities list. I, I could see the, the MOFCOM, the Commerce Ministry, floating out a name for some critical American company that may end up on that list. And, you know, that's, that's hard to do business. It, yeah, if you're that kind of rumor is circulating for you around you, selling their treasury holdings—that's the kind of the big sort of stick which many believe that China holds over the U.S. Is that a real possibility? Well, isn't there an old joke? You know, if you owe the bank fifty thousand dollars, you're in trouble. If if you owe the bank five million dollars, they're in trouble. Or I guess the numbers have gone up since the joke was first issued. But but you know, this is kind of—I mean, it, it, it's an illustration of the the difficulty of taking actions, whether it's the U.S. against Ant Financial or the Chinese selling T-bills, because, you know, that the act of selling those would have enormous uh, negative consequences for the Chinese. And so uh, it would be a tough decision to make. And the technocrats in China would be, I'm sure, making that case. Mutually assured destruction, I think Larry Summers once called it. Right. Um, Let's talk about a, a risk which is kind of increasingly sort of mentioned in the markets, um, popping up a little bit in commentary about the relationship. Let's talk about the risk that something radical and destabilizing happens with Taiwan. Um, now, you've not only worked in the U.S. embassy in Beijing, you've also worked in the U.S. mission in Taiwan. Um, what probability would you put on a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in between the U.S. election on November the 3rd and a new president coming into office on January the 20th? So I, I should start off by saying I am concerned. You listen to some of the rhetoric con- coming out of China. You saw that warning. I think it was in uh, People's Daily that to the Taiwanese, don't say you haven't been warned. You know, a very stern tone that you haven't, you know, the Chinese rarely roll out uh, unless they're uh, contemplating something serious. I'm not a military person, but my understanding from from uh, talking to people who do it for a living say it's not you know an invasion of Taiwan would not be an easy thing, and uh, the kind of preparations it would require to do that 
we'd see between now and, and January 20th. So that's kind of cold comfort that to me, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sanguine about the, the risk of an invasion before January 20th. But I think the long-term uh, issue is one that we ought to be concerned about, that, you know, that, that the status quo that kept peace in the Taiwan Strait is really starting to break down. Uh, and and uh, you know, that wouldn't be good for us. I don't think it would be good for uh, Beijing. It would be bad for Taiwan. So, so I worry about that. Dave, great pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. So from a country that's rising up in the global economic rankings to one that is not. Every so often on Stephanomics, we like to check in on progress with Britain's century-long process of industrial decline. And with Brexit talks again in the news, now seems like a good moment. So I'm very glad to be joined by one of the most astute observers of the economics of Brexit, Bloomberg's UK economist, Dan Hansen. So we're in the middle of negotiations, um, or we're in the middle of the commencement of some new negotiations. What's the latest? So over the past week or so, there's been a bit of a stalemate, surprise, surprise, in the in the Brexit negotiations. So we've had the UK saying that it doesn't want to continue formal negotiations with the EU until the EU shows signs that it's willing to make concessions. And the UK also wants the EU to recognise uh, the UK as a sovereign equal. And also, final, the final request from the UK side is to start work on the legal text of the treaty that will underpin the free trade agreement. And of course, we've got on the EU side, the EU still looking for the UK to make compromises as well. But there's been a bit of a change in the tone in the past 24 hours between the two sides. Uh, we've heard positive sounds coming from the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier. And Bloomberg has reported that both sides could return to the negotiation table in coming days with the aim of getting a deal done in the next month or so. And the reason they, the deal needs to be done over that time period is because parliaments need to ratify, national parliaments, I should say, need to ratify the deal in time for the end of the Brexit transition period on December the 31st. So as things stand, it looks like we're in for a, a dash to the finish line. And the, as I say, that, that deadline is December the 31st when the UK finally leaves the European Union. So some, some very modest good news. Um, but even as we hope for the recommencement of negotiations, you've written that the difference between deal and no deal is pretty small. Why is that? So I think the answer to that relates to the nature of the deal the UK is seeking to negotiate with the EU. It's looking to sign a free trade agreement with the bloc, which if we look on the spectrum of possible trading relationships, it could have chosen to pursue. A free trade agreement is close to the bottom in terms of the level of integration it demands or requires with the European Union. And um, with an FTA, the UK and EU would avoid tariffs and quotas that would come alongside a no deal outcome, but there'll still be a significant increase in non-tariff barriers. Now those range from customs checks at the border, documentation uh, around rules of origin, but they're also behind the border costs, such as regulatory barriers, and those apply to both goods and services. So the key point is that trade frictions are likely to rise sharply at the start of next year, whether there's a deal or not. And that's why the gap between a deal and no deal is smaller than if, say, you compared a no deal outcome to the UK staying in the single market or even staying in the customs union. Still, 
No deal is not zero cost. You've put a number on it at around 1.5% of 2021 GDP. How'd you get to that number? Well, we've, we've looked at it through three key channels um, that we think will impact the economy in the short term. So the first of those, and I mentioned it in the answer before, is there will be an increase in tariffs and quotas if there is a no deal outcome between uh, the UK and the EU. Added to that, it seems pretty certain that sterling will depreciate. And you add those two things together and you get a rise in import costs. And what that does is it squeezed household real incomes through a rise in inflation. Um, taking those assumptions together, so we think tariffs could rise by about 5% on imports coming from the EU, and we've assumed a 5% fall in sterling. Um, add those together, and we think it could knock about half a percent off GDP next year. The second channel that we've looked at is uncertainty, and we know uncertainty has affected the UK economy since it voted to leave the European Union in 2016, and it's most obviously seen in the business investment numbers. Um, but if we see uncertainty rise back up again, that could knock a further 0.6% of GDP next year, we think. And the final channel uh, that we've looked at is the extent to which lower trade flows, predominantly as a result of the tariffs and the quotas, could feed through to the supply capacity of the economy. And that could add, we think, or sorry, could knock a further 0.2% off GDP next year. So you add those three numbers up, you get close to 1.5% off 2021 GDP. So our baseline forecast where there's a deal is for growth of 5.4% next year. If there is no deal, we'd lower that forecast to around 4% growth. So even that 1.5% drag assumes a bit of goodwill on both sides to prevent a complete snarl up in the trade relationship. What happens if we don't even get that could you outline a doomsday scenario for us? So you're right that our scenario assumes that even if both sides decide that a trade deal is a stretch too far, we've assumed that talks do continue to, in an effort to mitigate some of the most disruptive parts of a no-deal breakup. But clearly, as you say, there is room for an acrimonious end to the talks and things could get could get messy. So there are two, two channels that we've you can think about this through. The first is the disruption of the border, and it would clearly be far more significant if there were big queues uh, down in Dover and over in Calais and goods couldn't move uh, across the border. And that would significantly weigh on the supply capacity of the economy. Now, given this is unprecedented, there isn't any clear way to calibrate the size of the shock, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say that in the near term, the fall in trade, so that's exports and imports, could easily be in double figures. Then on the demand side, you, you would expect a few things to happen. So you'd expect a bigger fall in sterling than we've assumed. You would expect a tightening of financial conditions as well. Um, and you'd also see a bigger lift in the uncertainty that's facing the economy. And all of those factors together would contribute to an even bigger fall in GDP. Now, Bringing it all together, it's very difficult to put a precise number on it, but I think you could easily double the 1.5% that we've assumed in our scenario. And I go so far to say that the risk to that view would be still tilted to the downsides. So the risk would be to an even larger near-term hit to the economy. No deal Brexit, 
potentially good news to companies renting portable toilets to lorry drivers trapped in the Kent countryside, but probably bad news to a much larger constituency. Dan Hansen, thanks very much for sharing your insights. No problem. Well, unfortunately, that's about all we have time for. So let me thank our guests and reporters, Michelle Jamrisco, Randy Thanthong-Knight, Siegfried Alligado, Dave Rank, and Dan Hansen. Voiceovers by Chai Chanok, Ti Ra Nao, Tanawat, Kyaldok Noi, and Prim Chiwi Ruch. This week's episode of Stephanomics was brought to you by executive producer Lucy Meakin, sound engineer Magnus Hemrickson, and me, Tom Wallach. You can get your regular fix of economics on the Bloomberg Terminal, website and app, and please tune in again next week when your host, the eponymous Stephanie Flanders, will be back in the hot seat, and normal standards of economic insight and interviewing dexterity will be restored.